All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And it flows right out of the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel. If you recall from our last recording, that the genealogy in a lot of ways serves as the prologue to the Gospel of Matthew, setting up the key themes of his Gospel, specifically that Jesus is the Messiah. And the genealogy shows that Jesus' family history qualifies him to be just that, to be the Messiah, the son of David, the long-awaited one who is going to do the work of God and bring in God's kingdom. And that genealogy ended... Before the little summary statement, it ended in verse 16 of chapter 1 by saying that that Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so now here in this paragraph, chapter 1, 18 through 25, Matthew picks up that point to describe how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And so chapter 1, verse 18 reads, Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. A couple things to note out of this verse. First of all, the word translated birth literally is Genesis. It's the idea of the origin not just birth, but the origin of Jesus the Messiah. And that is his origin story. Where did he come from as a human being? Well, this is it. And so we get the genesis of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And then it goes on to talk about when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And we have to understand some things about betrothal in the first century Jewish world. Jewish marriage customs at the time included two stages, betrothal, and the wedding. And betrothal actually included the formal arrangements between families. These arrangements could have been made uh, years before that their son was going to marry their daughter. Those arrangements could have made when these uh, children were very young and they would have maybe grown up knowing each other and knowing that they would eventually get married. But then there comes that formal moment where, okay, now we're going to enter into the formal uh, betrothal process, betrothal contract. And when things had been agreed on and the formal proceedings occurred, then there would be witnesses that would uh, make this whole thing legally binding. And the betrothal could only be broken by legal divorce proceedings. And so it was much stronger and much more formal than a modern idea of like an engagement. In fact, the couple was actually even referred to as husband and wife during the betrothal period. Even though a wedding hadn't occurred, even though they didn't live together, and even though there was no sexual activity, uh, they were still considered husband and wife, and any sexual unfaithfulness during the betrothal period was considered adultery. And that period typically lasted about a year, and then at the end of that formal betrothal period, there would be a week-long wedding celebration as the culmination of it, and then the bride would be formally brought into the groom's house, and now uh, they were not just betrothed, they were uh, married as well. And so it's sometime during this legal betrothal period that Mary becomes pregnant and Joseph has to decide what to do. Notice that verse 18 says, she was found to be pregnant. 
What does it actually that mean? Did she tell Joseph? If so, when did she tell Joseph? Did she tell him right after Gabriel tells her uh, what's going to happen as Luke's gospel recounts it? And obviously, presumably, Joseph didn't believe her. I mean, who would? Like, you're making up a story. You're pregnant. Yes, God did it right. Did she tell her parents? We don't know any of that. But she's found to be pregnant, and specifically pregnant by the Holy Spirit. In keeping with the original Genesis story in the book of Genesis, the spirit here creating life within her womb. And so here she is pregnant as the spirit has created life within her. And Joseph then needs to decide, well, what do I do with this? And so look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Legally, as we noted, he is her husband because of the betrothal process. He's considered that. So her husband, Joseph, that's the appropriate way to describe Not just her fiance, her husband in their legal context. Um, he wants to send her away. That actually refers to the legal process of ending their, divorce, uh, their marriage, their betrothal. Basically, he wants to divorce her. But he wants to do it secretly. Why? Because he's a righteous man and doesn't want to disgrace her. And so since he's a righteous man, he can't be married to an adulteress, but he's also a good man who doesn't want to disgrace her. So he wants to end this way, this, their betrothal and their marriage in the most uh, di kind of discreet, uh, behind the scenes, down low sort of way as possible so that he doesn't bring shame on her or on her family in the community. But verse 20, when he thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, so we would assume this is at night. Um, it's a dream, right? And so we're assuming it's nighttime. Uh, Joseph is dreaming and uh, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a vision in his dream saying, Joseph, son of David, which recalls what was made clear in the genealogy, right? That Joseph is from the royal line and the angel referring to him by this title uh, communicates to Joseph something of the royal significant of what's going on, what's happening in his situation and Mary's situation. And the angel continues after uh, addressing Joseph as son of David. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived within her is of the Holy Spirit. And so the words of the angel in this vision, this dream, reaffirms what Mary had likely told him. I'm not an adulteress. I haven't been unfaithful. This is God's doing. The Spirit of God himself has created this life, this, uh, this person within uh, Mary. And that's where this has come from. This is God's doing. And just pause for a second to ponder this. Consider this. Like Mary, at this time of her life, is probably around 13 or 14 years old. That was kind of standard marriage age in their context. Joseph, probably a little older, probably around 18 to 20. Again, the, by modern standards, this is very young. By first century standards, it's young, but this is normal marriageable age. And God chooses them. And how do they respond? They respond faithfully in spite of how big of an ask this is, right? In, in spite of how challenging this will be, uh, like just right up front, like people could do the math. People in the ancient world weren't dumb. They could do the math. They knew it wouldn't look good. Everyone would know that somehow she got pregnant during the betrothal period. 
Was it by Joseph? Was it by someone else? Right? Like, this isn't going to look good. There's going to be a certain amount of whispering and shame behind all this. And not only just in the immediate, what does this all mean for their future, their long-range future? If this one is the Messiah, if this one is the work of God, what all does this mean for their future? And so you have to kind of imagine the story and put yourself in your shoes to feel the weight of this. Well, the angel continues by explaining to Joseph who this child will be and gives us a very specific instruction for Joseph to follow. And so verse 21 says, as the angel continues in this vision, this dream to Joseph saying, she, Mary, will give birth to a son and you shall name him Jesus. Why? Well, he will save his people from their sins. This is fascinating to me, right? Before ultrasound technology, nobody finds out the gender of the child they're having until their birth. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? You don't know until the baby's born, but not Joseph and Mary. They learn in advance that it's a boy. They're having a boy, not just any boy, a boy uh, whose very life was created by the spirit within Mary. And he has a very specific role to play and thus a very specific name. So notice the angel tells um, Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. Because Joseph, as the husband, had uh, the legal responsibility for naming the children. And the name he's supposed to give them is Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew. It's the name that's often translated Joshua in the Old Testament. It's Jesus in Greek, hence Jesus in English. And it means God saves. That's what the name means. God saves. Which is why the angel explains to Joseph the meaning of the name, the significance of his vocation and his calling. His name is tied to his ministry, his vocation. He will save his people from their sins. Then Matthew pauses the story for a second. And as the narrator explains that all of this was the ultimate fulfillment of a prophecy given to Isaiah 700 years prior. So look at verse 22. Matthew uh, jumps in as the narrator and says, Now all of this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so Matthew recalls this promise from uh, Isaiah and applies it here to this situation with Jesus, the Messiah. And so the prophet that Matthew uh, refers to, even though it doesn't name him in verse 22, is the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah lived about 700 or so years prior to the events of Jesus' birth that Matthew is recording. And the promise or the prophecy is that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They'll name him Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. You can read this in Isaiah chapter 7. And it's a bit challenging because the original context makes it clear that the original message given to Isaiah was a message for his time period for his social and political situation 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. But Matthew says it's also fulfilled in this moment too with the birth of Jesus. 
And this illustrates how Matthew actually understands prophecy and God's promises to work. And so it's very instructive to us. So let me just briefly summarize the original situation of this promise so we know what's going on and then reflect on how Matthew applies it here to Jesus. The original setting of Isaiah's prophecy is uh, that Judah... The southern kingdom, Israel had broken into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom goes by Israel. The southern kingdom goes by Judah. So Judah, the southern kingdom, is actually being attacked and at war with an alliance of the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. So Syria and Israel have made an alliance. They are now threatening and attacking Judah. It doesn't look good. Uh, the king of Judah is uh, like kind of desperate and afraid for his life. God tells him, you pick a sign, make it as hard as you want. I'll give you a sign uh, that you're going to be okay. And the king, thinking maybe he's being righteous, but rejecting the clear invitation of God, refuses a sign. So God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyhow. And here's the way it's worded. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. Not translated there as it is in Matthew's gospel. She will name him Emmanuel. And then the passage in Isaiah goes on to say, He will eat curds and honey at the time that he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Catch verse 16 in Isaiah 7. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread, that is the alliance between Syria and Israel, the land whose two kings you dread will be abandoned. So it's clear that there was an initial fulfillment of this promise in Isaiah's day, uh, pertinent to Isaiah's social and political situation as a way of providing encouragement to uh, the king of Judah. And that the word that's translated virgin in Isaiah 7, 14, and here in Matthew, the word particular in Hebrew in Isaiah 7 is a word that could refer to a virgin, literal virgin, or it could refer to just a young maiden of marriageable age who could already be married and isn't technically a virgin. It's just she's a young maiden. Um, and so that word has some linguistic kind of flexibility to it. The word here in Matthew is more specifically, literally, a virgin. And, and Matthew sees, as he applies it to Jesus, he sees what was true in part in Isaiah's day is true more deeply and more fully in the person of Jesus. As one Bible scholar writes, Cindy Parker, she says, Matthew chooses, when he's dealing with Old Testament quotes like this, Matthew chooses quotes connected to the promises God made to his people. And God was true to his word at the time of the prophets. And Matthew claims that in a deeper sense, God fulfilled a greater promise in the personhood of Jesus. And so that's what's going on. So while there was sort of an initial and partial fulfillment in Isaiah's day, not a true virgin, right? Uh, just a boy born to a young maiden who serves as a sign to Ahaz, the king of Judah, right? That's, that's an initial fulfillment. But um, just as that was a fulfillment of God's promise to be with Israel in the midst of all their political turmoil way back then, well, in Jesus' case, his birth itself is a greater sign, a deeper sign that God is still with his people. But now, even in this greater, deeper sense, like this one, 
born to this young maiden, who's literally a virgin, whose child is actually created, uh, given life by the Holy Spirit. This one, in a deep and true, real sense, is truly God with us. God, in other words, did keep his promises. God has kept his promises. And God will fulfill his promise to be with his people. And now, especially through this one born to Mary. That's the sense and the force of um, Matthew pausing the story to recall this moment from the prophet Isaiah and say, it's really true in this case. God really is with us. So then after pausing the story, Matthew comes back to the story in verse 24 and says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Actually, abstaining from sex during pregnancy wasn't like totally unusual among the Jews of the day. It, it, it was sometimes a regular practice. In this case, as Matthew notes here for us, it ensured the uniqueness of Jesus' conception and birth in keeping with that promise and prophecy from Isaiah that she really was a virgin, that there really was no sexual activity. This, really, this child really is by the Holy Spirit. And so he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, until she gave birth to a son. And that word until should be understood in its normal sense. That is, uh, Matt, uh, Joseph kept her a virgin up till the point Jesus was born. After the healing from that and the process given by the Old Testament law for, the, for her healing from all that, Joseph and Mary engaged in normal, uh, natural, good marital sex. And that's contrary to the idea of Mary's perpetual virginity um, that became popular in church tradition and is still popular uh, in the Catholic Church. So I'll put actually an article in the study hub uh, about some of that and about um, Mary actually having other kids and uh, interacting with some of some of the ideas that I see are completely problematic with regard to what the biblical text actually says. And so uh, Joseph kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. Once Jesus was born, notice the end of the story here. And he, Joseph, named him, the baby, Jesus, which means Joseph has followed the angel's instructions. He believed this message from the angel and that he has legally assumed the role of Jesus' father in demonstration to his obedience and faithfulness to what God had told him in this vision through this angel. And so as we wrap up this little paragraph, let me just offer this, this reflection. And that is just, just, just a pause on just... Jesus, just the name Jesus, just this little baby Jesus, just what the angel says about Jesus, that, that this person, this human being was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit who uh, in this moment created life in the womb of a young teenage girl in Galilee in the first century. He's born of the Holy Spirit. He's born, um, as we see here, as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, promises to be with Israel. And he is, in some special, unique sense, already hinted at in this 
this early story in Matthew's gospel, he's God with us in a unique sort of way. And he's born specifically, as the angel said, to save people from their sins. That's his vocation. That's his mission. And Mary and Joseph, they don't fully know what all that means, and they don't know exactly how all that's going to play out. Uh, The story that Matthew's going to write is going to fill in the gaps for us and help us know that. But we know right from the outset, this is the aim. This is the goal. Um, And that whatever that means and whatever that tells, it's deeper and greater than maybe uh, they ever conceived. He's not just going to save people from the Romans save people from their uh, political oppression. He's going to save people from their own sins. Jesus, which means God saves. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And thanks a ton for uh, helping people learn about this uh, resource by sharing it on social media channels, uh, by sharing it with friends and, and family at church. And thank you for all the ways that you pray for and help this ministry continue to have an impact and bear fruit around the world. If you want to join the team of financial supporters, you can do so by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com. And you can either sign up for the Study Hub or you can click the Give button either way. uh, And you can set up a recurring monthly donation or through the Give button, you can give a one-time donation right there. All monthly donors get access to bonus material inside the Study Hub, to online courses, some maps and materials that I continue to work on creating and adding and uh, keep putting things in there to help people uh, just really dig in, study the Bible for themselves, but also teach it with others. So thanks a ton for your support and for being a part of the Listener's Commentary family.